What do you call that noise? Hello. This month we're thinking about XTC music played live in the past and the present. Welcome to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, and an episode in which we're hearing from fans who saw the band in their touring heyday and from Matt Hughes bass player with XTC, now in the middle of a US tour. First, though, let's have some podcast-inspired music. Two episodes ago, we played Ed Stainsby's Climbing Frame. That song was inspired by a conversation on the podcast about playgrounds in XTC songs. Where Ed Stainsby has gone, other musicians have dared to follow. And in last month's episode, we heard this. I'll leave my head uncut, and I don't care. I'll let my toffee nose in David White and Still Got It, which was inspired by the podcast discussion of English settlement and in particular No Thugs in Our House. Now it's the turn of Gary Perkins to introduce this month's song, whose title I think you might just recognise. What do you call that noise? My name is uh, Gary Perkins and I happily accepted the challenge to write a song based around Mark's splendid podcast. My track, What Do You Call That Noise, can be found at Gary Perkins, that's Gary spelt with two R's, on my SoundCloud page. As an XTC fan, my starting point for the song was Andy Partridge. I read that he lets a phrase or a musical riff suggest a scene, and the song then comes from his description of that scene. For instance, the acoustic guitar riff on Sensors Working Overtime suggested the medieval farming, ploughing type atmosphere. I didn't go quite that far back, but the phrase, what do you call that noise, took me spinning back to around maybe 1970. I must have been around 14 to 15 years old, playing the latest free family Beatles traffic taste releases on my red dancette, and my parents banging on my bedroom door, telling me to turn the music down. My bedroom was in the centre of the family bungalow. It never once occurred to me that the rest of the family wouldn't want to hear Keith Emerson and the Nice rattling through the live versions of Rondo and America. I recorded my track in what I like to call Studio 2. Actually, it's the corner of the spare bedroom with my second-hand Yamaha keyboard, all my various guitars and my trusty 8-track digital Tascam Porter Studio. I was aiming for somewhere between the Beatles' Your Mother Should Know and XTC's The Loving, and as usual, the end result's like neither. I hope you like the track. Thanks to Mark for the podcast and for playing my track, What Do You Call That Noise? What do you call that noise? Like nothing that we've heard before My parents banging on the bedroom door Begging please switch it down What do you call that noise? My dad is shouting, turn it off The neighbours rang to say Music of loud well, Every new generation Has got to make their own mark Find some new inspiration 
neighbors hanging on my wall I'm in a world of my own What Do You Call That Noise by Gary Perkins. And you can hear it in full at uh, Gary's SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com Gary Perkins. Um, and Gary has two R's in it, G-A-R-R-Y-P-E-R-K-I-N-S. I think I've got a new jingle. Thank you very much for that, Gary. If you are a songwriter and you have been inspired by something we've been discussing on What Do You Call That Noise, the XDC podcast, please send your song to me, mark at xdclimelight.com. And I can't wait to hear what you come up with. As ever, many thanks to the Pink Things, Humble Daisies and Knights in Shining Karma, whose support makes this podcast possible on Patreon. If you'd like to join them, uh, all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. I'll be giving a shout out to the Knights in Shining Karma at the end of this episode as usual. And if you haven't done so already, you should pop over to xdclimelight.com where you'll be able to buy a copy of What Do You Call That Noise? An XDC Discovery book. And very readable it is too. Now, last month we were looking back to XDC's live appearances in Manchester in the late 70s and early 80s when David Nolan and Mick Middles were keen gig goers. Another keen gig-goer in that city at the same time was John Heath, who saw XTC in 1979 at the Manchester Apollo. I asked him what memories the podcast brought back. What do you call that noise? I go to XTC by a friend of mine um, having the album um, White Music and saying to me, uh, you know, give this a shot, you, you know, you might like this. And at the time, the, the Stranglers were going and the, the jam, etc. And I listened to this album and thought, wow, oh, I, I really like that. I really like that. Went to go to, which I thought was a bit, um, it sounded like the leftovers from the recording session for white music to me. So as though they went into a studio with 20 records, chose the best 10, put them on white music. And then someone said, you do another album really quickly. So they put the other 10 on to go to, which I felt disappointed with. But then the, 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 the turning point was, um, was drums and wires. 
which still now I just think is is one of the best albums ever. And uh, I, I was bought that uh, as a birthday present, along with two tickets to go to the Apollo to, to see um, to see them live, not knowing what to expect. And all, all I remember was being hot, sweaty, and uh, but I'd never fancied going to a punk rock concert because I thought I don't like the idea of this spitting all over each other and Paul going around and throwing bottles of pee everywhere. Um, but I went along with some trepidation, and they just they just blew me away. They were brilliant. The, the standout standout was um, Battery Brines, which I thought, which I love the track anyway, and the way it builds. Um, and I think Scissor Man and uh, Real by Real, because it was a, it was the sort of um, I think it must have been the tour, I presume, for the Drums and Wires album. And I think it was maybe September of '79 or something like that. I think I was twenty, and I just remember them being just. Um, Brilliant, really. Musically brilliant. Andy Partridge, a great, a great frontman. Um, and uh, as I say, I came out covered in sweat, thinking that's the group for me. And I've always loved music, and I've always followed a varied amount of music. But I think that it was the first group that made me look forward to the next album coming out, and made sure that when it came out, I was there on the day to buy it. And and the, the three, I mean, for me, the three standouts, Drums and Wires, Black Sea, and English Settlement, one after the other, were just awesome. And to this day, you know, here I am, 40-odd years later, and driving my wife mad because all I want to do, if I'm, if I'm listening to music, listen to XTC, and, um, and desperately trying to get my 14-year-old son to listen to it, but he just won't, he, he won't have it at all. Even my grown-up sons of 30 and 38, they're not having it at all. They 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 grew up with it their teenage years and they drive for them back with it. Um, but that, that concert was just, it was a fantastic environment. It's a good, you know, Apollo's a good venue because it's not too big, uh, but it's big enough and it's quite intimate. And I love indoor venues. I hate these sort of great big football stadiums or whatever where there's no atmosphere. I thought it was a fantastic light show, but it was the music. It was the, I always think that particularly the um, the early stuff had a real degree of urgency about it. And that's what, you know, so impressed me. Great, great, great gig. They were absolutely buzzing about the band and saying, well, that, and I say, I've never before have I ever waited for an album to be released and made sure I bought it on the day it was released. I've probably never since, really. What do you call that noise? In the last podcast, I stated that XTC's last gig was on the 18th of March 1982 at La Palace in Paris when Andy Partridge dramatically left the stage. But I was incorrect. I was forgetting there was one more gig a couple of weeks later at San Diego's California Theatre on the 3rd of April. Luckily, I've got someone to put me right. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin Chanel, who was there with his friends at that gig. Hello, Kevin. Pleased to meet you. And that's right. Have I got my facts right? It was the California Theatre, was it? And and the 3rd of April. Yeah, the California Theatre. Yeah, downtown San Diego. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? Well, I would have been 16. A mere lad of 16, high school student. XCC were actually my, the first gig I ever saw. Had you seen other gigs at that point? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the first show, oddly enough, the first show I saw was Kiss. Kissing oh, right. <laughs> at the San Diego Sports Arena. And then a month after that, San Diego's first, this is 1977, a month after, or about a month after that, the first punk rock show in San Diego happened. And that was the Dills and the Zeros uh, at the Adams Avenue Theater, very famous old punk rock palace of San Diego's. 
Um, and then just after that, I'd see, you know, whatever was happening. And there was a big club scene in San Diego going on. So, you know, all the like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys, all those bands were all showing up. So I got to see a lot of those shows. The Screamers, probably one of the best shows I ever saw. So it sounds like you were pretty tuned into your music then at, yeah. at that age at 16. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I had an older yeah. brother who turned me onto a lot of stuff. So uh, Alice Cooper, when I was a little kid, things like that, New York Dolls. So when punk rock came around, he drove it right down my throat. So the damned and the pistols and all that stuff. I was hearing it all. And what, and so you went to XUC in, in San Diego and what was your, what was your awareness of the band at that time? Were you, did you know what you were in for? Well, this, yeah, pretty much. Um, I'd seen them on the police tour as well. All right. Uh, yeah. So I saw them and that was, I went there just to see XTC. I mean, police were fine and it was a good show, but XTC was like, I was ready for it. Uh, luckily the school that I went to, we had just kind of like this small coterie of, you know, like-minded new wave punk rock people, uh, you know, theater people and music people. And so one of them turned me on to drums and wires and um, I went out and bought it and I hated it and I returned it. And so, <laughs> but something grabbed my attention um, and I went and got it again. I actually rebought a record I had just returned. And uh, just little by little, it just started grabbing my attention more and more. And all the songs I really didn't like, I loved. You know, When You're Near Me, I Have Difficulties. Not an easy thing to like if you're a 15, 16-year-old kid, I guess. But uh, that became one of my favorites. And yeah, and then after that, I mean, when Black Sea came out, forget it. That, that was, that's still one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, that and Temple of the Lure of Salvage, you know, those are those are big in my life. Um, but yeah, then, um, you know, me and all my friends loved XTC. Uh, the bands that I was playing in at the time were doing cover versions and I was doing Making Plans for Nigel and that was gay fun. It was a, it was a blast. Um, but yeah, so I was lucky enough to have a lot of friends that, that were like-minded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by that time, English Settlement had just come out as yes. well. So English you know. Settlement came out in yeah. 82. And of course, we all went out and, and bought the uh, the British version as soon as it was available. Oh, I was going to say that. you. So you got the double album, not the the expedited no, I, I can't even remember what's, what, what the difference is. I know there, yeah, one's a double and one's a single, but I can't remember what's not on the American one. I think Leisure's not on there. Uh, but I never bought. I never bought it, so I wouldn't really know. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We were- it's sacrilege. Whatever songs were missing, it's it's wrong. <laughs> Shouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah. So then there was a, there was a few of you then going down to the California theater who were who were fans and excited all, all about it. Then I yeah, take it. So me and my high school friends, we all went down there. Um, somewhat carpooled, maybe like eight of us or something, um, and we were you know right up front. I mean, as soon as Jules Holland trundled off the stage where we all jammed right up front um nothing against jules holland but it was you know you heard him once you heard him a thousand times basically <laughs> if you ever watched his show then you know yeah you, you can't get away from jules holland but uh yeah we we're just so excited and it's a nice theater too it's one of those old like post vaudeville 30s 40s ornate theaters with you know all the filigree everywhere and huge stage so it's a great place to see shows i saw so many shows then but yeah, California Theater, uh, 1982, was just this fantastic show. And can you remember at that stage whether there was rumours about the, the problems the band had already had, you know, in Paris and and, and cutting off? No, no, the, the word didn't get around. Uh, that's one of the things that when I did hear about it, it really struck me. Because one of the first things that I do remember was, I mean, Andy Partridge is Andy Partridge in the show. He's, you know, animated and talking, gave a little spiel. 
uh, before Melt the Guns, just about how bad, you know, America is because of their gun problem. He's right. But he seemed totally fine. I was keeping my eye on Colin Molin the whole time because he looked bummed. He looked like really, really bummed. Like uh, he didn't want to be there and wasn't feeling well. And I, I didn't quite get it. And he was singing his tunes and he just didn't seem very enthusiastic. I didn't quite understand that. So when I heard the next day that they had canceled their LA show, I thought, oh, Colin Molding must be sick. That's got to be it. When I heard it was Andy, then uh, all these memories of the show started coming back um, about how Andy Partridge, you know, he looked like he may have been struggling with something. Back in, in that time, especially downtown, there were always people handing out revolutionary worker magazines, the big tabloid paper magazines. American Communist Party or Worker Party or whatever. I, I don't want to malign anyone here. But, you know, they'd always give them to you for free. Hey, thanks, whatever. And uh, so I just, I kind of held on to it the whole time. And so when we were pushed up front, well, they were playing, I want to say it was Watchtower. I just kind of handed it to Andy. And he was like being demonstrative and he wasn't playing guitar. So he was just like on the mic. And so I handed it to him and he like acted like he was looking through it and he sang anguishedly. And I was like, oh God, I hope I didn't piss the guy off, you know? Or something like that, but uh, you know, that was just acting or just being animated, you know. But um, you know, years later, I was like, "Wait, maybe I hope I didn't trigger something in the guy." <laughs> <laughs> you're personally responsible for that, yeah, exactly. Actually, you're responsible for good things as well as bad things. You'd be responsible for you know all of those studio albums and you know, <laughs> Skylarking, you know, the, the man who who made Skylarking possible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if I made it if I made it possible for him to hate Todd Rundgren, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to Todd. I don't know you. I don't know. Um, with a couple of things that I do recall, there was somebody that had jumped on the mic, actually a friend of mine who I consulted to kind of fill in my blanks for me. She told me she reminded me there was a guy that had jumped on stage and tried to grab the mic away from Andy and he got tussled and rushed off. I don't know if you know Andy took that as a you know, as some kind of aggressive maneuver that you know, tick the whole, okay, that's it, forget it, man, I'm done, kind of a thing. But part three of that, of the what went on that night would be, I don't recall if it was me that came up with the idea or me and 30 people that came up with the idea to jump on the stage and dance around like idiots because we're teenagers and you do that. But we did. And uh, I can't remember what song it was. It was after Watchtower, maybe the song after, I can't think of what it was. It was a lively one, though. And we all got up and we were just going crazy and not like moshing or anything, just dancing, you know, like excited kids. And we're up there, I believe, for the rest of the set. I don't think they pushed us off the stage at all. Uh, I remember one time uh, going over to Dave Gregory while he was doing a guitar solo and mussing with his hair, which is not a nice thing to do. And I really wish I hadn't done it. He looked at me like he smiled, but it was like, uh, if I wasn't holding a guitar, I'd smack you one. But <laughs> That was kind of the look I got, but yeah, I got to got to be there. That was really, you know, kind of the biggest highlights. And I think it for me, it kind of spells out what I perceived the show as being really unremarkable with regard to red flags or anything like that. Because really, I just recall everybody having a good time. It was a really fun show. There was no tension or anything or nothing perceivable, I should say. Yeah, because it sounds like what you're saying is that it, it, it's really quite minor and. Um almost uh, subliminal things that you were noticing and, and maybe in retrospect, you know, Colin being slightly off form or or Andy a little bit, but otherwise you've got a great lively gig with it. I mean, what you were saying, everybody up on stage, that sounds like an amazing oh, God, it was so uh, fun. gig. Yeah. And then that nobody took us off stage either. And 
Yeah, yeah. Nobody in the band seemed, even Colin didn't really seem angry about it or anything. You know, maybe years later, he finally knows who I am. He's going to send me a dirty letter. I don't know. But everybody seemed to be having a great time, which is really weird because I, right after we set this up, I, I finally looked at that Paris video. And God, I swear to God, I almost cried. I mean, the, you know, the interview beforehand, the, the sound check, and he seems to be having this really good time. And then they start playing Respectable Street and he goes off. And that's like, wow, that's, that's abrupt. You know, it's, it really hits you because of how abrupt it is. He's not like throwing a tantrum or anything. He just quits. And for him to have soon after that played in San Diego, flown across to America and played in San Diego and done this perfect show. And that, uh, I mean, that tells me just how bad things it must have been for him. Yeah, yeah. And also there's a contradiction that is, is probably true of a lot of people who are both extroverted and introverted at the same time. Andy's a fantastic performer, mm. uh, but was also finding it very difficult. So when he does the show, he's, 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 when he's on, when he's on form, he's, he's, he's amazing. And by the sound of it, that was an amazing gig that you were watching oh, yeah. of somebody who knows how to perform and is a, as a professional music as a professional musician knew how to uh, how to entertain a crowd but internally something else was going on yeah i know that that's the that's the toughest part i mean and i never really thought about it of course until the other day when i saw that paris video and then you put that you know put it all together and it's like oh my god you see the gravity of it like how it must have been affected him um yeah just get it was really yeah it was really painful to watch it was it was strange because yeah, i'd heard the story a thousand times and I needed to have it in front of me to really process just how things must have been. The difference between the 18th of March, which was the Paris gig, and the 3rd of April, which was your gig, it's only two or three weeks. Yeah. It's a very short amount of time, isn't it? So yeah. Not enough time to recover, clearly. And you can imagine, I mean, if this were today, you know, what that three weeks would have been. You know, there media coverage and you know, everybody saying, hey, Andy, are you okay? You know, and, and a doctor probably prescribing him something new and the more the understanding we have of, of you know, mental illness and, and things like that. And it's just, uh, you know, sad that it happened when it did. Glad he's still with us. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think by the impression you get, the the attitude was, oh, pull yourself together. <laughs> have, a, have a night off and you'll be fine. Have a drink, you know, that'll, you'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, uh, hearing how he talks about it too, it pretty much was that. It was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you just need a pint in you or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, so the gravity of that really got me. During all the dancing around, I remember one of the songs they played was Outside World, which I don't think anyone expected them to play. And I think that's when I was messing with Dave Gregory when he was doing the guitar solo. And <laughs> However, I looked on the set list and I don't see Outside World on there. So, I have, so now I'm questioning all the other th the aspects of it. Like, Because I always thought that they had opened up with Runaways, which seemed odd choice to me. But the lists say they opened up with Respectable Street, which, of course, makes sense. They, you know, that's what you open with. It's an opening song. Um, but outside world, I remember being there and I'm not seeing it on any of the, the set lists. And that was, that was one of the things. In fact, I was asking my friend, uh, one of my friends that I, uh, corroborated on this with about, about the outside world thing. Hey, do you remember them playing that? And she didn't remember anything, but, uh, we both kind of came to the conclusion that it, as last shows of a band that will never play again, it didn't seem very remarkable. Uh, the show itself was remarkable and just how good it was. But it didn't seem like, ah, oh, something's wrong. You know, they, they, we got no indication of that. Just because it seemed like a regular rock show. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to ask you about the set list because you are amongst the very, very few people who will have seen an official English settlement tour because I saw them the previous year when they'd started introducing, they had uh, Snowman and 
uh, what was the other song? There was there was there were, there were two songs from that eventually ended up on English Settlement that they were working in at the time. Uh, but I hadn't but, thought about that. Yeah, it's a good point. But but yeah, because the album only came out in in January or start of the year, February, and and so people hadn't they hadn't had the opportunity to play them live. So you were very doubly privileged. Yeah, in that sense. good point. Um, in fact, that was a song when everybody j- jumped up on stage with "Census Working Overtime." The of intro, course. yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody just you know went nuts, and when the you know world is football shaped part comes on, and everybody got all excited and jumped on the stage. And those things like I remember what I was wearing, you know, things like that. And, and I had much, much more hair back then too. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, they opened, I guess, with Respectable Street. I'll accept that, that I'm wrong about that. Uh, then right, it was Runaways and Violent Change. So I was like, okay, they're going to go through the whole album or what are they doing? But the, throughout the set, they played Jason and the Argonauts. Of course, Senses were going to overtime Snowman, Melt the Guns. And I think it's either it's nearly Africa or English Roundabout. Pretty sure it was English Roundabout. So it was, you know, I always liked, Colin was my favorite. You know, everybody had a favorite Beatle and all that stuff. Colin was my favorite Beatle. But uh, I just, you know, I was a bass player too. And so I always watched him. And of course, just anything on drums and wires, it's going to knock you out bass-wise. You know, things like uh, Road to Girdle the Globe and just all those great lines. And I, he always just amazed me. But uh, yeah, so I was watching him. And that's why, you know, I kind of keyed into what I perceived to be his being unsettled in some way. And who knows, maybe it was just because he was worried about Andy, that he was just kind of a little concerned. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. You would certainly be keeping your eye on the lead singer if that was, if they'd just gone through that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that may, so you are one of the, cause I've saw XTC live twice, but, um, and, and actually for an American to have seen XTC twice live is, is, is even more rare than someone in Britain, I think. So yeah, I didn't think about the fact that it's, yeah, I was at the show, the only show that had English settlement tunes in it. It didn't even occur to me. Um, you know, just the fact that I was at the last show was, was one thing, but the fact that that were the only people that actually saw the English settlement songs. Oh. I know, but yes, I mean, to watch Andy play, though, that was that was an amazing thing. Because, yeah, you, you mentioned... <laughs> to be on the stage with him as well. You've shared the stage with him. <laughs> <XTC>. That's pretty <laughs> incredible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm still apologizing to, to Dave Gregory, and I, I do apologize for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, his hair needed mussing, that's for sure. I, I didn't want to be the one to say it, but uh, it, it needed this. What do you call that noise? Um, on the day this podcast comes out, XTC, EXTC, will be midway through their first North American tour, having done an initial run around the UK and with more UK dates already announced for the rest of 2022. A few months ago, Terry Chambers and Steve Tilling joined us on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, and it's well worth having a listen to that episode if you haven't already done so. And I'm very pleased to say that we're getting close to having the first, the full set, uh, <laughs> because fresh off the first leg of their tour, we're joined today by Matt Hughes, bassist extraordinaire, <laughs> and we're very lucky to have him along then. So let's welcome him. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Wanel. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, for over 20 years, Matt has worked with major global artists, including Robin Hitchcock, Rick Wakeman, Damien Wilson, Roger Beaujolais and Bonnie Tyler. So I think we'll be finding out a bit more of all, about all of them. Yes. And we're also joined to get today by two more veterans, both of XTC and the podcast. So a will, big welcome back to you, Margaret Brown. Hello. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Um, and... 
also with Margaret is Julie Matthews. Hello, Julie. Hi, Mark. Nice to be here. Good to have you here, Julie. Yep. Julie is one of the organisers of the XDC convention, which this year will be taking place in real life, which is exciting, on the weekend of Friday the 16th of September in Swindon. Uh, Julie, how, how are plans shaping up for the convention? Uh, pretty well, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that, Mark. I didn't even have to pay you a fiver for that, so that's true. <laughs> but the, the invoice will go in the post. Yeah, so um, plans are shaping up very well. Uh, a few things still need to be in place. Uh, hand on heart, Mike Smith has you know done the lion's share of the scheduling and then most of the running around for that, um, along with... Um, Daryl Bullock, who's also doing quite a, a, a chunk of stuff, uh, liaising with uh, band members and doing lots of hotel and travel stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm mainly responsible for ticketing, and I'm hoping that uh, we're going to be able to get those on sale again uh, in the next week or so, because we want to do it, start selling tickets sort of six months out from the actual convention. Some people have still got tickets, have uh, been ultra loyal and held on to theirs uh, since the uh, convention 2020 that never was so thanks very much to them and hope to sell a few more for some uh, other people to come along and that means if i'm getting my time right that by the time this podcast comes out they will be on sales because this is going to be coming out at the start of april yeah fingers crossed we just need to finalize a few costs and uh sort of niggly bits and then uh, finalize the price and uh, get them on sale yeah Fantastic. And people can keep up to date with everything you're doing on the XDC Convention Facebook page. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. No. Yeah. Well, that's all very exciting. And I know um, I've heard a little bit of uh, some of the plans that that you've got, including plans for me. So <laughs> so I'll be there. Um, uh, so we can all look forward to that. And uh, uh, Matt, as a sort of, I guess, a newcomer to the, the cult of XTC-dom. I do, do, what do, how, what's your initial impression of the uh, enthusiasm? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say obsession, but the enthusiasm of no, XTC fans. Definitely. Well, it's a very uh, hardcore base, I would say, of people who you know, absolutely love the music. It's uh, very lovely to go out and play these gigs we've done recently and uh, so many people you know, really loving hearing the music live and you know, some people move to tears. In, in fact, in, <laughs> I know it was a, my bass was too loud, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, no, re- really amazing. You know, it's obviously a music that deeply touches a lot of people. It's uh, one of the best uh, well-kept secrets, isn't it? <laughs> the, the bands, you know, and the mm-hmm. music. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, just only today I was talking to somebody who would, he'd seen XDC in 1979 and when he was 20 and he was making that exa- exact same point that why don't more people know about that why wasn't dear god a sort of international hit why yeah. why wasn't peter pumpkin had you know why is on con- constant rotation on 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 the radio and i was recalling when i did the xtc fanzine limelight the second issue the like the editorial if you like the the first thing we wrote was we are not alone because even in 19 whatever that was 1982 it felt that people were um, isolated and not really aware of each other. It was a strange sort of thing, and that and over the years that that's never gone away. So that people are mad keen XTC fans, but they tend not to know anybody else who is, and so it's always a bit of a shock to the system if you turn up at uh, one of your gigs, for example, and realise that you aren't actually. Alone and <laughs> There's there are other, other people, people there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. a nice nice thing. I, I I do remember vividly when we played in uh, Liverpool, just people singing along. You know, we could really hear the the audience at that gig, and it was a. Uh, 
it's a bit like a big social, really, you know. I think we were the sideshow. It was more <laughs> people coming in and having a great night and being, you know, with fellow fans and stuff. That was definitely, you know, a really good feeling, you know, we've had from the gigs of the the audience. We're there for them, really. So it's uh, it's been great to do. And obviously some of these songs as well, I've never seen the light of day um, live mm-hmm. as well, or maybe in some of the other bands possibly. But as far as I know, you know, some of them I don't think have uh, certainly not been aired very many times. I've heard a few versions of uh, Mayor of Simpleton on the uh, I think by some of the members of, of Jellyfish doing their version, which was pretty awesome, which uh, <laughs> can be slightly scared. <laughs> yeah, well, as, I'll, I was going to mention Mary Simpleton later. Oh, do, okay. I'll mention it now because it's such an obvious bass player question, but, yeah, yeah. but it's, the, it's a sort of holy grail of, of bass lines, isn't it? So yeah. how, how difficult is it to play? <laughs> uh, it's, there's, well, there's quite a lot of notes in it. I mean, it is a fantastic bass line, but I think once you've kind of got your fingers around it, they, they do sit quite nicely under your fingers and... It's a kind of a repetitive pattern in the in the verse. So once you kind of got that sort of lodged in your brain, it's not too bad. It's not. It's probably not as bad as it looks. That one. You know, watching the the gig in Edinburgh, which I did and enjoyed very much. Thank you. Uh, only the other week, uh, you were singing along to Marathon as well. You weren't just playing the bass. Yeah, no, that was a, that's that's the hard thing. It's not just the playing and then trying to sing because it's a very high uh, backing vocal part. What well, is for me anyway. So to try and sing that across the. Uh, you know the baseline and keep that going. That's that's the challenge. It's the two together. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's patting your head and rubbing your tummy. It's exactly, like exactly. Many hours of practice on that one to try and get that one together. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, Margaret, do you have any observations on what I was just saying about, and, and Matt was just saying about that sense of an XCC community all coming together in these gigs and and all having that shared, yeah, that shared experience together. I think that the the general public as a whole are sort of sleeping on XCC as a as a band but I uh, I do catch myself when I um go and see you guys just looking around and wondering you know who have you come with and why are you here and sort of like or just you know how did you how did you come to this place at this time sort of thing is you, you see all sorts of people and um yeah it's like you said it is like a big social like I've, I've um just you just sort of strike up conversation with people or people strike up conversation with you and it's just it's really nice and because people are sort of looking at me as well being like why are you here <laughs> so, <laughs> <too> young. <laughs> yeah margaret's not necessarily the youngest anymore but you, yeah you do find yourself sort of waving at people across an audience and go well, yeah i saw you uh yeah. gig previously yeah. and yeah uh, oh i've only seen you online and yeah. one of the days that we went to a ctc and i as well i remember we were in the um pub with some people afterwards and i was outside just chatting to this guy because he was wondering why the pub was so full and um he's he said oh what's your name and i said margaret and he wouldn't believe me and then, um, and then he also didn't believe that I was there to see people from a band from the, you know, first got famous in the late seventies. And then he was like, "No, is your name Margaret?" So I took him inside and said, "Well, this is my mum. You can tell her why you think my my name's so weird." That's nice, <laughs> Matt. From your experience of playing with with and for other bands, uh, is that obsession quite common? Is it something that a lot of bands attract, or is there something special about the the? obsession of XTC fans well, I think I, I mean it has certainly other bands I've played with that have had a little bit of that as well but I think probably more so from XTC um, I guess any musician you know the reason you play an instrument is to connect with an audience and you know if you can achieve that then that's that's kind of you know why you play really but uh, I think when I've done some gigs with a guy called Damien Wilson um, he's like a kind of rock singer I did some acoustic stuff with him and you know that was a the people who saw him are, you know, really passionate about it as well. And it's it's fantastic to see, you know, that kind of real emotion when people hear music and it really moves them, you know, that's a, 
pretty powerful. But I think probably mm. XTC definitely on a, on, a, on a bigger scale compared to that. So that was a more hardcore <laughs> fan base, you know, very small. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and and actually, although you although we think it's weird that more people don't know about them, there is something quite nice about being part of a almost like a secret sect there are bands and there it's it's like our thing to celebrate <laughs> exactly exactly if you're fiercely defensive of uh, the stuff and if yeah. anyone says anything bad it's uh, chase them down so how, how's how's it felt then on the road you've done that sort of initial week of gigs and you were just saying that you all shared your own lurgy yes as, as you went round. but did, did it feel like the band was developing over that time because there's nothing like live performance no no totally totally i mean you know i have to say the first few gigs i did were a little bit uh nerve-wracking trying to kind of remember everything but uh yeah obviously having kind of you know seven gigs or sort of in a row was really sort of honed things down to just playing the same songs night after night and sort of little intricacies uh that you kind of pick up that that you know because you can do it again next night you kind of remember that and so that's that's really cool, and you know, just getting to play with Terry a lot more, and obviously there's recordings, but then obviously how it's played live is slightly different. So you know, you're sort of trying to pick up on there's slight variations, a bit of a bass drum pattern here and there that is a little bit different, you know, that you pick up on a live show. But I think we were sounding pretty good, I thought. <laughs> but the, yeah, yeah. Despite the lurky and the, you know a few croaky voices on stage, we were probably vocally stretching the heights. Uh, well, I certainly wasn't anyway. <laughs> Mark said you work with Bonnie Tyler, so you're probably used to working with croaky voices on stage. <laughs> this is true, very croaky. I hasten to ask, um, I've, I've only, I haven't actually done any live gigs with, with Bonnie Tyler. It was a bit of a recording I did for us, so we're... Uh, I've never actually met her in person, so uh, I have to say one thing that sort of doing music is you could have played with lots of famous people, but I mean, there's so many great musicians just out and about doing it every day who you never heard of. It kind of gives the impression that some people are sort of like uh, head and shoulders above other people. But my experience of just out and about gigging is that, you know, at a professional level, everyone's, you know, really very good. And uh, it's just the stage that you're playing on that's different, really, between sort of one thing or another. So uh, don't give the impression that uh, it makes you any better than anyone else. Well, we've seen you a few times now, Matt, and you are definitely very good. So. Oh, well, it's very kind of you to say. I'll place down in the audience. Oh, jolly good. Well, thank you. I saw you at Basingstoke rocking out down there. Yeah, yeah, I've been to, been to one or two. Actually, Steve, the um, guitar player, Steve Hampton, he, his girlfriend did a, a whole video of that Basingstoke gig, so I had to look at it back, and it was uh, yeah, really good. Quite impressive seeing it from the other side. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's all right. You've seen me dancing in the bathroom before. Um, the, the, well, I think it was at the 100 when... Um, I think oh, not, the, not your own bathroom. No, not my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The sort of ladies' toilet was in line with the stage. And I was just waiting. I didn't think anybody could see me. And I turned around and he was like, yeah. He wasn't in the ladies' toilet. No, he, he wasn't. He was on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Straighten the story out quickly. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you're, you're going back to the Hanukkah Club, aren't you? So uh, you can That's right, we are. moment. And... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, we've got a, a couple of gigs. We've got horns in uh, Watford and then... We're playing in Brighton with Clem Burke from Blondie, so that should be a bit of fun. A double drum bill for that one with Terry and Clem, so that'd be pretty cool. So obviously Terry knows Clem from back in the day, so that'd be quite interesting to see uh, two of them together (laughs) reminiscing. Yeah, it is an amazing opportunity to see those from that very exactly that same uh, period of of new wave history as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine that's probably happened since... uh, you know, the 80s, I should think, since uh, they played together last. Yeah. Talking of people blast from the past, actually, it was a really nice moment on tour when we were in York. One of uh, Terry's drum techs, who was working with him right up to the sort of end of the uh, live band, um, he hasn't seen since about 1982. So 
it was a complete surprise, but he turned up uh, backstage to uh, say hi to Terry. So that was a, a nice moment. Oh, wow. you know, not seeing each other for, uh, you know, however many years, 40 odd years. And then it's like, obviously Terry wasn't expecting to be there either. So that was pretty cool. There were obviously uh, some serious yeah, hugs going on there. <laughs> that was a... Yeah. I was I was just thinking, Matt, what you were saying about playing alongside Terry. And, and it's a thing that's often said about drummer and drums and bass that they they interlock and it was said particularly of Colin Moulding and 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 Terry that they were a sort of formidable unit in themselves does 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 that do you do you feel as though you're taking on Colin Moulding's shoes in that um not not just like note by note but kind of somehow in the the instinctive feel of yeah, putting the note in the right yeah. place well that's a good question I mean I guess I would say I'll probably don't really think about, you know, kind of trying to follow. Not, I mean, obviously I've worked out Colin's bass lines and, and what have you, but I kind of, you know, Terry probably plays things slightly differently now, maybe than he used to as well. So I'm just not listening to where he is, you know, and just following where Terry's placing the beat and putting his bass drum and that sort of stuff anyway. So uh, obviously Colin's an amazing player. So I guess I'm sort of trying to do my own. I mean, naturally you're going to do your own spin on things, aren't you anyway? But, uh, you know, I think it's just a, a bass and drum thing, you're naturally going to lock in and find where things are. So uh, it always takes a while to get to know someone and because every, everybody plays slightly differently and how they do their fills and where they place the beats. So over time, we've kind of got to know each other's playing. So uh, I think I'm hopefully getting there with it now, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and how how do you rate Terry as a drummer? Because it's, you know, certainly back in the day, people would go to see XDC just to see Terry because he was such a powerhouse and so, you know, rhythmic and so... Uh... What's the word? Clockwork. Yeah, well, very much so. He's very super steady with his timekeeping. The beat doesn't move with Terry. It's, uh, you know, he holds it down. It's a very, very consistent like that. But yeah, some, you know, obviously amazing Tom work with Terry, you know, when we play uh, No Language in, in in Our Lungs. I mean, that's always a sight to behold when he goes for that one. It's uh, pretty incredible. I think the lovely thing about music, everyone's got their own voice. You know, Terry's voice and the drums is very different to anyone else I've worked with. And it's, uh, you know, it's really nice to work with obviously a great player like Terry and kind of, you know, have the opportunity to play with him. It's kind of being sensitive to someone else and sort of fitting in with them. So, uh, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a, obviously a pleasure to <laughs> work with a great man, but mm-hmm. it's kind of nice because, because probably when I was younger, I mean, I had, I was aware of XDC, but I probably didn't grow up with them as a, as a, as a fan necessarily. I don't probably have quite the awe, maybe, of someone who was like, he was a idol to me. I mean, Terry's just a really nice guy and he plays really good, great drums. So I'm not being disrespectful, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's better when, you, you, when you're not overawed by someone, no, isn't it? It's, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. He's, just a, he's just a really lovely chap and a, a great drummer. Especially as Terry himself is very down to earth. He's not the sort of person to... No, not at all. You know, he's... Lord it over anybody else. Absolutely, not at all. No, I think... Uh, you know, finds it all a little bit embarrassing. Everyone sort of thinking he's <laughs> he'd rather sort of shy away. I think from it all. You know, so he's quite uh, self deprecating like that, Terry. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, Margaret and Julie. Well, actually, particularly Margaret, because you've grown up with this music, but you've grown up with much of it that didn't have Terry playing on it, and so now you're going to see XDC live and hearing Terry playing on it. So I just wondered what what you thought of, of what he brings to the post-1982 songs? I think, well, just, I think that Terry's got, like, powerhouse drumming. Like, I feel like it's sort of, it's not um, bombastic in the sense that it takes over, but it's, like, um, it's just, it's still very prevalent. And, like, there's no doubt that he's playing sort of thing. So it's, it's And it's also nice to hear, like, his take on stuff as well. But then that's the same with 
um but you you doing Collins bass lines and um Steve singing Andy lyrics and um, stuff like that so it's like it's different but it's 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 still really good like you guys are so tight like play together and it's just a joy to see as well because you can tell that there's a lot of there's a, a lot of sort of camaraderie between you guys and you can tell that you're all just well just very good musician musicians on like on your own and then when you come together it's just really good and terry's not afraid to sort of you know bring himself uh to, to it is he you know yeah. but as, as you say he's very unassuming so it's like you know, yeah, well, it's like know. modest drumming, which is strange because he's literally just yeah. eating things. So yeah, I've actually said to him, it's great, great to hear you play not only the stuff that you used to play, but the stuff that you didn't used to play. And it's yeah. like, well, I'm just sort of, you know, to paraphrase what he said, it was basically, well, I'm just sat here with the sticks hitting the, hitting the drums, sort of, in that <laughs> yeah. sort of self-effacing way that he has. But uh, yeah. yes, yes, brilliant uh, and yeah. fascinating to see the, especially the latest stuff. One of the tracks that we really all enjoy playing live is uh, Sacrificial Bonfires, you know, and obviously Terry didn't play on that. Yeah, that's one of my favourite. So, uh, you know, that's, that's great because that's all with the the, um, the soft sticks and, it's got, you know, there's some lovely playing in that one. It's a really, uh, I, I, I kind of like the version that we do. It's a bit different, to, obviously, to the recorded version, obviously, with all the strings and what have you. So I think that one works quite well live. I actually wouldn't um, care to say which one I prefer, to be honest. The live, the, your guys' live one on the studio one, I think the, like, they are very different. Like you said, like missing the strings mm. and stuff, but Steve's got that Evo thing, isn't he? Which yes, is, that's right. It's yeah. really, really good. Yeah, and um, it's it sort of ebbs and flows as well, and it must yes. be difficult to sort of keep keep up with each other's levels in that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like riding a, you know, riding a wild horse, trying to keep it kind of steady because <laughs> it you know if you get it too close it kind of like makes a really loud sound and then you know yeah. drops off really quickly yeah. so uh, which is perfect you know. for the feel of the song as well because it's almost a little bit eerie isn't it like the, the, just the concept of it so yes it is yeah absolutely but like a theremin or something like yeah, that yeah a bit it? pagan yeah, absolutely yeah, it's a and you reminded me as well that we've a couple of songs you've already mentioned sacrificial bonfire and no language in our lungs they're uh, you could probably call them fan favourites, I suppose, but they're not the obvious. No, uh, making plans for Nigel Senses working overtime, uh, greatest hits package, which no. which you do as well, but the, it adds a, a kind of variety, which which I think pleases the aficionados as well as the yeah uh, uh, initiates. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, there's a few from the dusty corners, uh, isn't there? The, yeah. the the, the catalogue, you know, which is which is great. You know, it's nice to have some of those maybe hidden away gems to uh mm-hmm. get out of there and so uh you know i mean like wonderland as well i think it's a, you know it's a bit of a different yes. version we do of of that one as well that's uh obviously very electronic on the uh, album isn't it but uh it's a, quite a mm-hmm. nice one to do live hard vocal as well yes i think that is the toughest vocal of all actually for steve it's a really really high one i heard the audience members are talking at, you know outside in, in the interval and afterwards and they were Oh, I never expected to hear that one, and no, um, no, I really didn't think they would go there. Yeah. So people are surprised, you know, in a good way. No, they um, love it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Matt, you were just describing your awareness of XTC before you got this gig, and and it was by the sound of it a sort of passing interest, but not an obsessive interest. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always been a band that's definitely been on my radar, but you know, not one I've really explored. It's always kind of been. I don't know if you have a, like a to-do list in music of things that you know, I must check that out. So it's been kind of, <laughs> you know, yeah, other yeah, bands yeah. that I like that always sort of, you know, um, have them as an influence, you know, and to kind of mention them and you think, oh yeah, I must uh, delve into that. But, uh, 
There we go. It's giving me the perfect opportunity. Because it's like a big commitment, isn't it? You're making, you're, I mean, you're, you're committing at least the next six months of your, your life to this project. And uh, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, maybe you've committed longer. I don't know. But, but uh, was, was there a point when you thought, oh, well, I don't know this band very well. You know, it's crazy to be committing to a live band. Or, or, or did you suddenly say, no, this is something I really want to do? No. Well, I mean, the, the, the kind of, I got the gig really through uh, Steve Hampton because I uh, have played in another band with him um, in the past so he he uh kind of said you know do you fancy doing this and at the time there was already the uh the american tour was lined up and some of the stuff in the uk so it seemed like a pretty amazing opportunity so and plus you know listening to the music as well it's like oh this is fantastic so you know it's something you know really amazing to, very privileged to be part of no question of uh not wanting to do it you're thinking oh you know it's quite a while but you know it's uh yeah, one of those yeah, things yeah. you kind of dream of kind of landing on your in your lap really yeah so, so well then what was your uh I, I guess this is quite recently that you would have been listening to a lot of this music for the first time ever and discovering it what did you did you start at the beginning and end up at, at the end or did you how, how did you go about exploring the xcc catalog and, and what did you think when you found it i mean my initial point obviously was we had two hours set to learn to do the gig so that was that's kind of where i started out so and obviously that's a a mixture of kind of obviously the kind of older stuff and the more recent so and then from there then i've kind of looked at some of the you know some of the albums from there and thought oh it's comes in this one and you know some other great songs and talking to other people saying oh have you heard this one and you know <laughs> discovering these other tracks from there it's kind of been quite restricted from the initial point but then branched out from there really to uh you know there's some great songs that we don't play that you know i really <laughs> hope we might do in the in the future we've got a couple new uh ones in the uh in the far, we thought we'd better not do uh, Dear God when we go to America for the uh, controversial lyrics in case we get uh, lynched outside the uh, gig. So we're uh, we're sort of working up a bit of a new and acoustic song to uh, start off. So it's going to be uh, Love on a Farm's, Farm Boy's Wages is going to be our uh, opener of the second set. So uh, we're going to oh, do nice. that one instead. Yeah, it's a great track. A great, awesome bass line on that one. I love that one. Really mm. love the way it weaves in and out of the harmony. That's really cool. And a, and a, a lovely middle eight as well. When it kind of goes, it's Sanbury. You have a favourite one to play? I do like Mary of Simpleton. I have to say that's a, but probably from a from a music point of view, not necessarily the baseline. I mean, la- no language in our lungs. I love that one just because the band's so kind of like full on in that one. It's like saying, "Who's your your favourite child?" I guess really, you know, <laughs> they're they're all lovely. <laughs> But those two particularly, I do enjoy. Will you have any time for sightseeing while you're out in the States and Canada? I hope so. I mean, we've got uh, so we've got a couple of dates together when we first get there in Vancouver and uh, Seattle. And then we've got three days before we've got the next gig, which is down in California. So I think it's about a day travelling. So hopefully we'll get a couple of days there. And then we've got a, a few days before we, when we finish in California after about five days. We've got a couple of days before we then play in Chicago. So... We're obviously going to have a day sort of to get over there, but we might get a, a spare day. Hoping for a few extra days in California and having a, a chill around there. <laughs> but then once we get to, to um, Chicago, then we've got a bit of a run then. It's about five in a row and then one off and then another five in a row. So I don't think there'll be uh, too much chance to see much in between, I don't think. And it will. I mean, we can only speculate, but being in America, I think, will be particularly special because for for so many people who got into XCC at around the time of Skylarking, which was so big in America, that they just never have had the chance to hear this, any of this music no. live. Uh, you know, so there are a few fans out there who, who saw them in the early days, but uh, many, 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 many haven't. And so 
I think they'll be overjoyed too. Absolutely. To well, you. Um, you know, really, again, everything crossed for a, a fantastic reception. But uh, we've obviously got a lot of kind of feedback from the Facebook page and what have you. So lots of tickets being sold. So I'm hoping it will be as good as the UK stuff, if not even more people. There's so many uh, American fans on the, the Facebook groups and certainly the convention 2022. Tickets on sale soon, right. group. Um, I've heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we mentioned People that have. before. Uh, I, I feel great for them because so often, you know, they go, "Oh well, you know, the, the guys are playing in Swindon. Oh, I can't get there." Uh, then, they're, then they're expanding. They're playing a bit around the UK, and then they're expanding and a bit more and a bit further and a bit wider and a bit more often. And hey, they're coming to America to name a film yeah. with Eddie Murphy. Um, and so I feel great for them that you guys are, are going to go out there and give them an absolute treat. They're, they're just going to love it. I'm excited for them as well as well for you guys going out there. Well, we're all super excited about it as well. It's uh, one of those kind of things that you dream about doing, really. So uh, I know Ter- I was just talking to Terry today and he's like, felt like it's his, uh, he never expected to ever be doing this ever again. So he's really sort of so chuffed to be out playing his drums again and getting to go to the States. I know that's a really big deal for him as well. He's really excited about it. I think that goes across everyone. And yes, it's certainly, having having seen you twice, uh, or XCC twice anyway, not you twice, you once and XCC twice, uh, there's definitely a sense of enthusiasm and, and just love of, you're, you're clearly enjoying yourselves up there, even if you do have your logo <laughs> or whatever, there's a sense of, yeah, of of having a good time doing this stuff which is important to communicate to an audience. Oh, I, isn't it? Well, I hope that comes across, but, you know, we're all having a great time. It's a pleasure for us all to be out there doing it, you know, um, and playing these songs. I'm glad that comes across, but we're all, uh, yeah. you know, really, really loving doing it. Hopefully that enthusiasm is yeah. infectious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering from a, from a musical point of view, you just said something very interesting and, and, and lovely about Love on the Phone Boy's Wages, which, you know, the, the, the way that the bass doesn't necessarily go where you expect it to go, but it's true of XTC music in general, that people often yeah, comment. Absolutely, um, I think it's true of Colin's songwriting as much as Andy's. But you know, they, uh, Andy Partridge doesn't <laughs> go in the in the direction that you expect. He always goes left when you expect him to go right, and so on. For, for, for when you're in the process of picking this stuff apart, even the more, if you like, straight songs that were the hits. How what what's your perspective as as a musician about what was going on when they were recording? Yeah, I mean, music? it is. It's definitely, as you said, you expect it to go one way, and it goes a different way, and you know, some of the, the changes and the turns and the chord progressions are just, you know, they shouldn't work. <laughs> and certainly some of the bass lines, there's been, a, there's been one or two. I remember Ball and Chain, which isn't a massively complicated song in some ways, but, um, so not massively complicated bass line. But, but in the chorus, there's just a note in there that just shouldn't work. <laughs> but, you know, I, I spent quite a long time listening to it thinking, he's not playing that, is he? And then, but he was, you know, so it's just like, oh, that's, but it kind of, you know, it's kind of a, a major over a minor kind of thing. So it's sort of really clashy, you know, and uh, yeah. on paper you think, oh, that's, you know, it's a wrong note. But, you know, if you play it any differently, it sounds wrong, which is, uh, you know, really interesting. But also uh, Colin does lots of sort of scale kind of like runs and movements. So the harmony sort of changes under the chords as he moves up and down scales. You know, it doesn't necessarily follow the, the obvious route through a progression. He kind of quite often does that as well. And, and that's just really nice. And picking out some harmonies of, with the vocals as well and that sort of thing, you know, really nice. And I, one of my favourite bass tracks actually from XTC is uh, uh, Then She Appeared. But that's some yeah. great, there's some really lovely bass playing on that one. I've listened to that one a lot and picked that apart. You know, he does lots of like what we call double stops where you're playing two notes at the same time, which is quite unusual on the bass, you know, it's... Uh, 
some really nice kind of chordal stuff he's doing. So, uh, you know, very inventive, very inventive, and uh, some you know really interesting. Do you feel stuff. just? Do you feel that you're learning from him? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. you know he. Kind of plays some quite cool notes, if you know what I mean. If that's a, that, that note could be cool. <laughs> it's not the ones that are sort of are kind of too pretty, sort of some darker stuff, but not kind of heavy metal dark, so it stands out too much. But just kind of goes under the radar. But when you sort of like dig into it, it's like, oh wow, yeah, I like that. It's kind of a lot of it's quite subtle that maybe you wouldn't really notice until you kind of get stuck into it. But once you do, you kind of you know have a real kind of appreciation of some some great playing, great note choice. Yeah, and you sort of notice. I think I've often said that. Uh, it, it's hard to cover an XCC song unless you do it in the uh, faithful way that you're doing it because because it's almost like the um, arrangements are part of the song. Yes. If you take the arrangements away, you, you what you have something else. I don't yeah. know what you have after that. But and and if you didn't play that right note, no, somehow the audience would know. Yeah, it just wouldn't somehow seem quite right, would it? But yeah, it's 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 not like you can kind of like work out what the chords are and then jam over it. You've got to kind of. You know, a lot of it, I would say probably like 97% is to be played as, you know, there's a little room for manoeuvre here and there, but a lot of it is pretty set because it's arranged so well. You know, it's fair enough. You don't want to kind of move that around because it's, as you said, it's going to change the song. It ain't broke. Exactly. If it ain't broke. Yeah, definitely. You know, <laughs> these guys, obviously, you know, the band obviously spent hours kind of working it out. Terry was telling me that often Colin would leave his bass to near the end and sort of see what space was available and then fit his bass around the available sort of space that was left in the song and recorded that way. So that's quite interesting. I know Paul McCartney did that on quite a few tracks as well. You know, it was one of his things he'd often do that at the end. Yeah, no, I've heard that same thing and and it's a very musical way of thinking, isn't it? It's making this, it's it's not competing with the rest of the music, it's empathising with the rest of the music. No. Absolutely, yeah. You're finding where the space is and you're sort of fitting in that. No, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in some of the uh, recording sessions. That's yeah. for sure. So, having studied Collins playing so closely as you have, uh, how would you rate him in the world of bass players? Is he? Is... I think I think very underrated. I, I, I would say you know, as a fellow bass player, I mean, I obviously heard of the band, but I've never really heard of Collins as a bass player. But like all good bass players, you know, it's it's uh, almost when you don't notice a bass player, that's when they're doing a great job. But you know, when you kind of get stuck into what he's playing, it's, you know, really, really nice, really tasteful, really spot on the groove as well. A fabulous bass player, I would say. I'd rate him right up there. Not someone who's going to do a, a crazy bass solo and, you know, uh, dazzle you with amazing fast runs and what have you. But musically, a, a great, a great band bass player, I would say. And that's an amazing thing. Having worked worked out his lines, I'd definitely put him right up there. Someone to learn a lot from. And I know lots of yeah. other bass players really rate him. Having met some other bass players who like XCC as well now, you know, they're all quite amazed by some of his uh, his lines. Like Yacht Dance, for example, you know, that's a, the way the bass kind of like moves around. That one is a little riff, that, but the riff's kind of quite a sort of counter kind of point to the rest of the thing. That's, just to think of that line is great. How did he come up with that? It's, uh, and uh, I'm thinking then that the whole of English settlement was played on fretless bass. Is that, is that an instrument that you're uh, familiar with? Well, I have. I have played fretless before, but uh, yeah, I've never really taken an outing. Obviously, I've, I play double bass on a sacrificial bonfire, playing electric upright bass. I'm familiar with that, but but a fretless uh, electric is, is a bit of a beast to play. Thankfully, I've, I've managed to avoid doing that so far, but you never know. <laughs> I might have to uh, <laughs> improve my shots. <laughs> Depends how big the stage show gets. That's a really nice double bass, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Very pretty. Yeah, it's obviously different to the original, isn't it? There's no double bass on that. When I first heard it, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I think that would really work. So, 
you know, the other guys were willing to give it a go. You never know. I might do yeah. love on a farm boy's wages on the, on the double base as well. That might be, yeah. Uh, that would be nice, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, slap base on yeah. <laughs> You're going to do the remix. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Matt, Matt, tell us how you got to where you are now. What, what, what's the route to becoming the sort of person who ends up playing with all those people I mentioned before, Rick Waitman and Robin Hitchcock? And I've kind of been playing instruments, I guess, since about the age of six or so, you know, uh, played in brass bands and what have you and in orchestras when I was younger. And I think I got to about the age of 16. I was playing the tuba at the time. And I kind of thought, you know, it's not a really cool thing to take to a party. I kind of thought, oh, it'd be nice to, you know, good way to get some girls maybe. So much for your you beer. Know, exactly. Too. This is very true. Yeah, quite a few beers. So from that point, I sort of took up guitar and then, and then bass guitar soon after. The, the usual uh, method of getting into bass that... Uh, I was in a band with another guy and he also played guitar and so did I. And his, his guitar playing was way better than mine. So I, I, I got moved onto bass. It's a great instrument. So, you know, once I kind of got into it, I, I, I love the bass and uh, it's a, you know, never looked back since then, really. But uh, yeah, so since that, I, I've kind of did some teaching and, uh, you know, just tried to make a living doing music for, for quite a while. I mean, I probably did that for about four years when I was in my 20s. So, you know, I did obviously a few gigs with some some you know, good players and did some sort of small touring and stuff like that. Uh, so I did it, you know, quite, quite seriously. And then I got to about the age of 30 and I kind of thought, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be playing in kind of covers bands and doing gigs all over the place. You know, I just grow up a little bit and get a sensible job. So I ended up going into teaching, basically. So I've kind of did a teaching training course and taught in a classroom for, you know, 10 years. I tutor privately now, so that's been my job for about the last sort of 10 years as well since then, really. So all the time keeping the bass kind of ticking over, but probably maybe about five years ago, I did some gigs with Damien Wilson in uh, in Holland and in Germany. And that really kind of rekindled my sort of sort of desire to kind of play a lot more and do some some interesting gigs and stuff. So I've kind of really sort of fired up since then, although it's always been something I've kind of ticked along with. So I guess like Terry in some ways, you know, I did it a lot when I was younger and then it's kind of been a bit of a, more of a sort of a, a Spartan period and then it's kind of rekindled again more recently. It hasn't been a... Bug. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, I've always kind of kept it going, but certainly in the last five years, really sort of tried to push it on a lot more. It's a good positive history and and, and I'm, it makes me wonder whether you feel as though you're a natural magpie, you know, that you that you like moving from style to style to artist to artist to, to you know sometimes working with one musician at the time somebody else yeah well, absolutely i mean i do like a bit of variety of different things and uh working with different people you know as a sort of person who expresses himself in music it's always nice to you know work with someone else's different voice and sort of see how that fits and interact with that and i guess really being a bit of a musical tart really just picking up when opportunities arise you know something good kind of comes your way I think yeah why not <laughs> like how Mark went the magpie and you went for tart yeah exactly well you know that was the, uh, <laughs> the polite version <laughs> <laughs> basically I just love playing music really that's why I do it if you never got paid for doing it you, you know I'd still do it a famous musician said that if they if they could do a gig at the end of their garden they they play gigs every night and uh, for, for nothing they do it for free you know it's just a it's just all the hanging around that's a bit of a pain and the travelling or what have you. But playing music's the joy, really. It's kind of why we all do it, really. Or you hope so, anyway. And obviously, if people love yeah. it, then so much the better. <laughs> <laughs> and do, do you compose your own stuff as well? Are you a, a songwriter? Uh, well, bits and bobs, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that's my kind of forte. But certainly music and you know, you know, writing sort of backing tracks and music, definitely, that's a, 
a lot of fun with that. I mean, I haven't done a lot with it really, to be honest with you. But uh, you never know. I mean, there's there's always talk of uh, trying to get a few original tracks off uh, from EXTC. So uh, we'll see. Might be quite nice if we can do a bit of collaborative writing. Mm-hmm. I've, well, I've, I've seen Steve making that comment and Steve Tilling making that comment, and it and it intrigues me partly because I can't quite imagine how you would. I can imagine why you would want to do it and how you would uh, have fun creating it, but I can't quite imagine how you would introduce it to the fans. No, exactly. No, I'm not sure either. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, I guess we'd slip one in a gig here and there, but yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. I mean, there's there's been quite a lot of people asking if we were going to do any recording and that sort of thing. So uh, I guess obviously if we did do some recording, it would have to be more our own, you know, our own stuff rather than you know, the XTC back catalogue. I don't know how that would go down, <laughs> really. So, there are a couple of songs that you do that uh, some of the fans don't don't know. I'm just thinking of uh, Scatter Me, uh, Where Do yeah. the People Go? So, you know, they, they go down well, and some people don't know those. So, yeah, no, yeah. a couple yeah. of things would also there. be appreciated. Yeah. Would be noticed, but yeah. I would think would also be appreciated. Yeah. As, as long as the gig is just longer, as long as you're not taking out <laughs> adding stuff would be there three hours <laughs> you could become your own support band there we go we could have yeah exactly could do our own material to start with and then uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other stuff afterwards absolutely <laughs> the warm-up act but it's um, it is i mean it's certainly great to see you being feeling that the four of you feeling as creative as that as, as that that you're not you know that, that you've got more to offer yeah than... i think i think for our own point of view it's kind of nice to be creative as well isn't it it's great playing these songs but whether you know our own creative undertakings lead us anywhere who knows but it's kind of just nice to do that isn't it you know it's a sort of self-expression and yeah so i'm not i'm not sure how all that will pan out in the future i know steve telling we've certainly jammed a couple of his ideas over um in rehearsals before that sounded really good so and there's a few few things floating around, so uh, we'll see. Yeah, and that, uh, that's making me realise because I've got a natural focus on Terry Chambers as the original XDC drummer. I haven't asked you about either either of the the Steves, either Steve Hampton or, or Steve Tilling. Um, both of them great musicians, and, and getting you know getting a, uh, this is this, this is going to come out wrong, but getting away with 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 doing covers of a band that uh, are, are much loved by the people who are listening mm. to them. Uh, and and not doing a sort of uh, a, a slavish copy, but get bringing their own personality, yeah, their own absolutely. character to it. So certainly, Steve Steve doesn't try to sound like Andy Partridge, no, but still convinces us that he's he's doing good justice. Yeah, to those songs. absolutely. I think that's a you know obviously a deliberate thing. He doesn't. He's never going to just want to be an Andy Partridge impersonator. I mean, that's just, <laughs> no one wants to go down that avenue, you know. No, obviously, no, that's no offence to Andy, but, you know, <laughs> no one wants to be a kind of a, that kind of, uh, you know, an impersonator, do they? It's uh, pretty pretty cheesy. But, uh, no, I mean, uh, you know, Steve Tilling is a, is a, he, he knows every note inside out and backwards on every song. You could ask him the harmony part in the third chorus and he'd be able to sort of pick it out for you, you know. And, you know, every bass part, every guitar lick, he's kind of got a, a sort of photographic memory for the music, as it were, you know, of every part. So he's a uh, super methodical. I mean, I don't think I've actually worked with a musician who's been so uh, kind of inside the music he's playing. You know, he knows everything about everything. Pretty amazing skill. And he knows how to sell a song as well. Yeah, he brings his own brand to show him yeah. doesn't he? He does, and he's a great front man as well, absolutely. He's really kind of got the talent for that in, in spades, which is, you know, no no easy feat. You know, it's a, 
a big thing to stand up there, sing those songs so well, and also then play the you know some of the crazy guitar parts that you have to kind of do at the same time and put that all together and then lead the band. So you know, it's a three jobs for the price of one. That one. When I first saw him, we went to go see TC and I. I think I said to you, Mum, I was like, "Who's that guy?" <laughs> I was like, "Who's that guy?" Full of his faces at the side of the stage, and I was like, "Yeah, he's great." It was really just always felt like a natural pro- progression for him to. Um, take on the songs after TC&I. You know, Colin wasn't going to do them. Yeah, I know. I did, I did see a, a pirated sort of YouTube uh, clip of uh, some TC&I. And I almost didn't recognise Steve with his short hair. But, you know, I could see him rocking out there. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. I recognised him by his yeah. lunges rather than his, uh, in his, his face. It was his stage <laughs> moves. The trousers. <laughs> the trousers, yeah. <laughs> that, that gave it away. Dead giveaway, yeah. I recognised that lunge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I very much... I was at one point in the most recent Edinburgh gig I was just looking at Steve and realizing that he was doing something you know really quite complicated but at the same time as you know doing the sh- the showman stuff out to the audience and you yeah. know with absolute confidence there was no sense that he wasn't going to hit the right notes but his you know his hands were up and down the the, the neck of the guitar and absolutely. complicated absolutely things and singing yeah no and there's some beastly guitar parts horrendously difficult things to play I mean and Steve uses a, a digital guitar so with that, then you can change like to um, open string tunings instantly. So because a lot, I think a lot of it is with uh, unusual tuning as well. You know, it's not the sort of regular tuning that's a lot of the guitar parts. So it's a bit of a beast to try. And uh, I can see why people don't maybe play XTC songs so much live because they're just horrendously complicated. Some of them, you know, they, they sometimes they don't sound like they are. But if you actually try and play it, it's like, whoa, oh my God. You know, it just isn't stuff that sits naturally on a fretboard. It's just not what you would play. Some of their stuff sounds a little bit like it's almost off kilter. And it's, and, um, or it's like drumming in the infills. Like it's just, it's perfectly balanced, but it's, but it's almost off balance. It's like just treading that line. It's mm. get called quirky, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, and I've never yeah. met a musician who um, who knows them who does, doesn't appreciate the the structure of composition. Just picking up what Margaret was saying, that what you were saying about starting the the second set with Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, I would have thought that if you tried to shoehorn Love on a Farm Boy's Wages in between two really raucous and fast yeah, songs, yeah. That, you know, the chance of just getting the rhythm wrong would be so great. Absolutely. Because you'd be going at the wrong speed or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, it's a, it, I think, it, hopefully it will be, we'll, we'll wait and see, but hopefully it'll be a nice one to start that, uh, the second set. It's quite nice just to ease into things, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's one thing that's really nice Doing this set, I think it's been well put together. You know, it's got that, it's got a quite a quite a nice sort of flow through things. You know, with the more slower material and the more upbeat stuff as well. You know, it's seemed to work quite well. There's a few tweaks maybe to to be done, but I think uh, overall it's pretty pretty spot on. No, you can't yeah, change it now because yeah. I've seen it enough times that I never went to go to the toilet. And <laughs> let's see. So, what songs do you go to the toilet on then? Literally, sort of thirty seconds before before the end of a set, you know that uh, you're going to get the head start on everybody. Be, being female, you know, we <laughs> sort of rather less in the way of toilet facilities than chaps. Yeah. So you've got to get that thirty second head start. Yeah, good thinking. Tactical. <laughs> <laughs> who'd have known having the set list beforehand would be so uh, important <laughs> so my final question to you Matt it's the leading question is as a result of all of this have you become an XTC fan oh well <laughs> there's a, there's a, there is a correct answer I was about to, to say I think uh, <laughs> well most definitely yeah yeah. there's some great tracks you know I mean great lyrics as well you know when you kind of delve into the words behind the music as well and you think wow yeah amazing some 
quite kind of interesting lyrics that you think kind of trying to kind of dig the meaning out of, of what they're trying to get across but some other stuff may be a bit more straightforward you think, yeah really cool some good kind of fun songs as well as sort of some deep stuff and interesting subject matter about everyday life as well I think that's really it's not kind of some distant sort of something you can't relate to I mean I, you know I think that what they wrote songs about was was really great so definitely I, I, I appreciate that and obviously, as we've spoken about, some amazing, interesting music, something that you can really enjoy, but still a bit out there that's kind of makes it interesting and makes you kind of think, oh, what's that? I think it's a great combination. I think Terry often talks about them saying they, they try to do uh, sweet and sour with their music, you know, sweet enough to be appreciated and not too out there, but sour enough to be interesting, you know, to have that kind of combination. You can definitely hear that in the, in the music. So, uh, most definitely. I've still got lots and lots of music to, to uh, work my way through, though. I mean, I've, you know, I've probably got about another 10 years worth of listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous. You've got the chance to still discover all of that stuff. It's all ahead of you. That's exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. um, was it the, the Dukes of the Stratosphere as well? I mean, I've not to, not really explored much of that either. So, you know, there's all that to kind of delve into as well. Fab. Yeah, who knows? We may even do one of their tracks. That would be, that'd be quite, quite cool, wouldn't it? Something of a... It would be, it definitely would. Yeah. You'd definitely get an audience for it as well. Yeah. I think probably a dedicated Dukes audience is probably out there, don't you? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, Matt Hughes. It's been fantastic to have you and and and, and lucky because uh, because you are just, well, so busy and have been uh, touring the UK and off to, to, to the US now. So have a great time in America. And thank you very much, Margaret and Julie, to, to clock up another, what do you call that noise? the XTC podcast. Uh, I've been Mark Fisher. Listen again next month. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Nice to chat to you. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. What do you call that noise? Thanks to Gary Perkins, John Heath, Kevin Chanel, Matt Hughes, Margaret Brown and Julie Matthews for lots of entertainment and fantastic chat. Really good of you to join us today. And many, many thanks to the podcast supporters on Patreon who make it all possible, including the following Nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Kevin Burt, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Alan Hughes, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusuf Murrah, Amy Parkinson, Murray Meikle, Karen Neal, Doug Perry, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatehome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, and Nigel Waller. And if you'd like to support the XTC podcast, it'd be great if you could. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again next month. See you then. Bye.